This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Grandstand Digital, this is more than just a game. Yes, welcome to More Than Just a Game, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here, and joining me to delve into the array of issues on offer ahead of us is none other than Simon Johnson. G'day, Jono. Great to be here every month, Roachie. Indeed. And uh, coming at us from the South Bank end is Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. Hello, all. And uh, David Gill, second show in a row, not no non-starter. Tell you what, yeah, back from South Africa, but um, recovering yeah. from the research he's done, presumably. Yeah, jet lagged, no maybe. No commitment, no commitment. On the show ahead of us, we'll be wrapping up the footy grand finals. Look at leadership in sport, especially with the new CEO at Cricket Australia, and also the goings on at the FFA. We'll look at club ownership models. Also, Warney's latest musings, and that's before we get to red card, yellow card, where we have a bit of fun at the expense. of of perpetrators of off-field indiscretions. You can follow the show on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Get in touch with us via that method. And, of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes via your favourite smartphone podcast app. But for now, let's get into it. More than just a game on ABC Grandstand Digital. Funny how the NRL and AFL final series both panned out. Rugby League provided a pretty compelling few weeks of the sport. Before, I think it's fair to say, a somewhat one-sided grand final, while the Aussie rules provided the reverse, really, finishing a sort of an uninspiring few weeks with a spectacularly good granny, uh, which is all very well, but which one of the two of them won, which was more popular? Now, attendance obviously is a bit of a shoo-in for the Aussie rules, being in a larger stadium. They got a 100,022 turned up. Interesting 22. enough, 22. Did you know MCG is the 10th largest stadium in the world by capacity? Is that right? Yeah, it is right. Top one gets three guesses. Which country is the biggest stadium in the world by capacity? I'll go India. No. I'll go, I'll go Brazil. No. Where? North Korea. North Korea. Active. It should say active. Apparently, it's being bigger stadia. Is this um, like their president having a golf handicap of scratch as well? Uh-huh. Uh, sort of thing, fair or? question. My, this has been independently tested. I saw by... a picture on Wikipedia. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Legit. <laughs> 114,000, that okay. joint. And then the next eight are all US college football fields. Really? In the low hundreds. That's extraordinary. Exactly. I don't exactly. think you, sh- you can count the demilitarized zone as an arena. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, so the attendance is obviously, and look, the other funny thing is, is attendance always gets me is how Rugby League actually advertises tickets for sale for the grand final, as the Aussie rules could sell it probably three times out. Um, but look, perhaps then it's fairer to turn to the TV ratings. It is, especially if you're down here in Melbourne, um, arguably suggesting that the AFL was more successful because it drew 3.38 million people and the NRL only 3.03 million. So, you know, by that standing, well and truly, uh, the AFL is your winner. Now, that said, if you go to the very important subset of the pre-game show where uh, the NRL had Gang of Youths and uh, the AFL had the Black Eyed Peas and Jimmy Barnes, then uh, the NRL were the winner with 1.7 mil and the AFL only 1.8. I'm 
two. I'm still catching up with Gang of Youths. Australian yeah. band, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'd be struggling with those, Rachie. I, I thought modern. the highlight of the, um, the pregame entertainment was Will I Am, lead singer of the Black Eyed Peas, actually checking his uh, phone yes, during, the, was uh, aware of that. during his performance. Allegedly live streaming, but who knows? Live Maybe streaming. texting. It's, it's, it's for the young people, young people, because they weren't watching on TV, it seems. Going live. Go I on. saw these ratings numbers too, Steve-O, and I, I saw the numbers you mentioned, but I also saw a peak number and this uh, piqued my interest so the aussie rules uh, as you say royals 3.38 but they had a peak audience of 4.3 million uh as opposed to rugby league 3 million and a bit as you said royals it peaked at 3.4 3.5 so the aussie rules had this big spike which i suppose is consistent with a tight finish people have sort of gone hey turn the telly on turn the telly on um, I also saw another stat, which I thought was quite interesting, which was that it was one of the lowest um, TV audiences for a number of years. Mm. So, for example, the NRL, you've got the Roosters playing the Storm. The Roosters are a staunch Sydney club. You would expect it to be really strong ratings in New South Wales. Apparently, the Sydney audience was less than a million, so 895,000, the third lowest for a grand final in over 25 years. Mm. Again, it was the lowest, and I think the AF, both the AFL and NRL fell into this camp, the lowest numbers since 2008. Right. So, which is GFC, obviously. People had to sell their TVs to <laughs> get over the stock market crash. Uh, and the other number I thought was interesting, despite Melbourne playing in that grand final, just as many people in Brisbane turned in to watch the game. <laughs> mm. Look, when you play it out, it, it's the old story of the southern states went AFL, the northern states, and regionals went for the league. Naturally. Yeah, and, and no surprises, I suppose. Um, I do think, you know, if you do go on the attendances, it's really interesting you, you're talking about the, the finals being a bit of a, a non-event for the AFL. They drew more than 90,000, I think it was, was it four five, times? Five games. Five times, yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe I wasn't including the grand final. They, um, it was a huge semis. They just they just weren't all nail-biters. It was a really, you know, inter- just the, the, the buzz around the actual matches was huge. Helped with some clubs, helped by the uh, participation of some clubs who haven't necessarily made it big Big traditional clubs. Correct, correct, correct. Speaking of tradition, uh, talk of ratings spills neatly into the vexed AFL question that simply won't go away, whether or not they should have a night or even just a twilight grand do, final. Do you know this is the biggest non-story? <laughs> I, I, googled, no, I googled twilight AFL grand final. Yeah. Do you know what? The same article appeared <laughs> at the same time for the last three years. I mean... Every time someone will raise it, oh, we've got to have a Twilight AFL Grand Final. It's better for TV. It's better for the halftime entertainment. It's better for the pregame entertainment. It will never happen. My concern is it's not just some journo rehashing an article every 12 months, the same article. It's that sporting administrators, such as, say, Gil McLaughlin, leave the door wide open yeah. to the possibility. So it's definitely a, a viable threat. It's a clear and present danger, John. I'm not a fan. Let me just uh, pin my colours to the mast there. Bit of tradition. There's no harm in leaving it at the uh, the after traditional afternoon kickoff, and clearly the TV numbers suggest that uh, enough people come and watch it. If it ain't it's broke, true. don't fix it. Gill and Eddie everywhere. They are uh, pushing this barrow big time. They think it'll ra- raise their ratings high. But I think if you look at the league over time, I think this downward turn has something to do with uh, kids not being able to watch the game. I really do. But you know. Yeah, as in the NRL grand finals on too late. I mean, by the time that finishes, it's 10 p.m., isn't it? 10, 10.30, same as State of Origin. Probably better off for for the kids and for the younger generation to be seeing it in the afternoon. 
And someone, uh, I was talking to someone about the this very topic only recently, and uh, they actually wanted the NRL grand final brought forward because their issue, and it's a bit of an adult issue, so any kiddies just go and do something else for 10 seconds. Their, this particular person's issue is that you have the rugby league grand final lunch, Barbie, mm. and come 8 o'clock, you, you sort of don't really remember much of the game. Ah, yes. Mm. Trap, trap for young players. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting suggestion. Um, look, while stabbing at the heart of uh, of tradition, just to go off on a, a bit of a wild tangent, very disappointed to see Sandown, you know, the traditional curtain raiser to Bathurst. Oh, you're vaguely right here. Yeah, three, it's always... <laughs> How oh, are you slipping motor racing all, into this? Yeah, segment? yeah, yeah. It, I'll come back to the footy. It's okay. It, for the last 50 years, it's been three weeks before Bathurst. It's the, been the curtain raiser. Next year, first time, nah. You know why? They're trying to avoid finals footy. Oh, is that they're right? They're putting Bathurst, they're, sorry, putting Sandown in November. Motor racing aficionados up in arms? Uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't read enough to, to find out. I am, and that's all that matters. But yeah, look, to bring it, to bring it back to the, to the footy, the other thing that, that sort of I'm intrigued by is that over the last few years, I'm guessing, the league and the AFL seem to have their finals footies in sync, the grand finals in the same weekend. In the past, it would occasionally be on the same weekend, but it seems like they're in lockstep, have been for a few years. And I wonder whether that's a deliberate ploy, like almost a sort of collusion in a in an allowed kind of way, or whether it's like keep your friends close but your enemies closer. Whether they sort of welcome the competition, one or whether it just matters nothing to them. I'm sort of making stuff up. Well, it changed for a bit, didn't it? For a few years, when the AFL had that buy before the the final round. Um, well, that's what that's what brought it into into sync. Well, that brought it into sync. Well, it yeah, contributed yeah, yeah. To the it. AFL used okay. to be the week. They were the week before, before weren't they? Yeah. yeah, and and I think it works better for the AFL to be head to head because in general, I think they they win the ratings, so they don't want to give the NRL that free weekend at the end of the season. So I think they start at the end and then work their season forward. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, like you say, we're conspiracy theorising now. Maybe the AFL are banking on a bit of uh, grand final fatigue that people, you know, will watch their, their their moment on Saturday and then just can't quite back up until the Sunday. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, all right, well, look, um, it, it's been a fantastic season of footy and uh, look forward to doing it all again next year. Cricket Australia recently announced that Kevin Roberts will be the new CEO, new Chief Executive Officer, taking over from James Sutherland. Now, who is Kevin Roberts, I hear you ask? Well, after a worldwide search, or at least a, quote, extensive process, unquote, they've gone with Sutherland's deputy. Now, how's that for reinvigorating an organisation's culture, eh? Fair comment, Rochi. And I love your comments about worldwide search. I mean, what does that actually involve? Can you imagine the behind-the-scenes shenanigans that would have gone into that appointment? I mean, we, we all work in corporate land or have worked in corporate land. We understand how this executive search process works. All being executives ourselves, obviously. Oh, of course, Rochi. Mm. Indeed. Executives in sport, no doubt. <laughs> Um, but Something. the amount of dollars that would have been spent on it, and the process is, especially for a top job like that, it's quite intricate the way it's involved. So there would be a job description that would be sent out to a couple of recruiters. Recruiters would get the gig. You'd prob- well, you'd probably send it to, you'd engage one. So, so Creative Australia engaged Egon, Ergon, Zender, who are head pretty well-known yep. top-level headhunters, yeah. But, well. But- they would have done an internal and an external search. They would have, you know, there would have been an application process. No doubt there were quite a, a couple of internal candidates, some externals from around the world. They would have had to present to them. What what sort of a fee would they have incurred for that? 
How much time would have been spent? Look, I um, I, I did a bit of ringing around. I, I was hopeful that we would actually be able to talk to someone, an expert in the field, on this matter. And no one would talk. And oh, no one would talk. They're the that, most flagrant self-promoters, well, these headhunters. Yes, but at this echelon, right. they don't necessarily want to be seen as uh, revealing trade secrets. The secret sauce. Upsetting the, the Apple card or any, anything like that. I mean, you're right, a heck of a process, obviously, Jono, but I, I think what might have scared these couple of people I had a chat with uh, is, is the question I wanted to ask was, is having this process just a smokescreen? When you've got to pee for the job, the deputy sheriff in this case, yeah. and you pay, it would be a lot of money, tens and tens possibly into the six Hundreds, figures, yeah, yeah. Um, in order to simply rubber stamp uh, your pre-existing and, and idea. That's, and that's the big issue with this one, and you alluded it alluded to it in your introduction, that the choice of an internal candidate as opposed to an external. When you look at an organisation like Cricket Australia, it has had its Royal Commission moment with Sandpaper Gate. <laughs> and, you know, as far as a sport that's in crisis, it's cricket really in Australia at the moment. I mean, yes, it's doing well commercially. It's negotiated big deals with um, TV companies, but it's in crisis. You've had Sutherland in the job for nearly 20 years. It <laughs> needs cultural change. Why didn't they go external? Roz, it's you're, not, not you're just Sandpaper Gate. Come on. This is, a, this is an organisation that has been run like a chook raffle for the last, what, um, I'm going to go with 10 years, and, and that was covered up by the performance of the team for the first part of that that that's what kept people coming in the door. Once they actually had to work for a living, they ran out of ideas quick, smart. And last year wasn't just Sandpaper Gate. There was the pay dispute with the players. And mm. who ran that? Kevin yes. Roberts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and did such a great job that James Sutherland stepped in and, and said, well, although I think the Players Associations have demanded that Sutherland or you know, lobbying for Sutherland to get involved, weren't they? But that was a debacle for Cricket Australia, yep. the worst possible result. Yep. And they completely folded, as we've talked about yeah. on the show before. But, I mean, you compare it to some corporate examples, which I think is, you know, can be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Look at the CBA. So they had massive problems with Oztrack. Um, this would have been 12 months or so ago. They were looking at a successor to Ian Rev. They went internal. So they went with a guy called Matt Common, who had been there for 10, 15 years or so. And the Oztrack thing, sorry, this is the 57,000 breaches of uh, Various regulatory problems. Yeah. But, and the Royal Commission hadn't happened by that stage. Uh -huh. So they hadn't reached the nadir of their PR issues by that point. <laughs> but then you look at AMP. AMP, even worse. Post-Royal Commission, they, they went through a massive leadership hunt for a new CEO. They've appointed, appointed an external candidate. So a guy called Francesco De Ferrari, mm, credit yeah. Swiss exec. Exactly. He's on a cool $8.3 million. Yeah. But it makes sense there. You could buy a few to, Ferraris with that. You could. But it makes sense to have an external to, to drive some cultural change and some organizational change. And I, I just query whether a guy like Kevin Roberts, who's been at Cricket Australia for that long, is he going to do that? And is that what we need? So maybe in some situations, I'm not suggesting it's the case with either of the first two, although some might, is Kevin Roberts a sacrificial appointment? Someone that they're only mm. expecting to last in the job for a year or two so they can transition to somebody else. Until the Ethics Centre, the St. James Ethics Centre uh, yes. finding comes out. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. The other thing that um, I was able to weevil out of uh, the couple of people I spoke to about this topic was that there's more and more feeling, certainly in, in the search firm land, that you don't need someone from the sport um, to, to fill in at CEO. Now, there's been a couple of maybe potentially embarrassing times where sport <laughs> has gone outside the sport and it hasn't really looked good to the fans. You know, Peter Beattie and David Smith, both the rugby league, both not knowing mm. certain players, for example. Right. 
But from a functional point of view, you know, what these people were telling me makes a lot of sense. I mean, a CEO is not there to know who, who's in what team, right? Again, not a good look from the, for the fans if there's that gap. Um, but, you know, they're running a business and, Johnny, you've essentially said this. So, you know, the functionality of that role is, is still pretty I, similar. I mean, I, I'd be fascinated to find out what sort of candidates were thrown up. I mean, and that's a mm. really good point, Rochi. Is it the case that it is primarily sporting administrators? Because it's such a small pool in Australia, isn't it? Of sport, you yep. have four major sports, maybe five. We've had some movements within the sport. So you've had... You know, Todd Greenberg, um, he was an internal candidate, I guess. Raylene Castle has gone from rugby league to rugby union. But there's so few jobs. Gallup's gone from league to soccer. Mm, I wonder, chairs. I wonder whether it is the case. You're getting <laughs> some pretty high-profile corporate appoint, uh, or potential candidates who, who are missing out on these roles who may be really good sports execs. But there, there is something to be said for someone who appreciates the game. True. I mean, you look at it for any product... Someone who can sell it, and I don't mean you know commercially just sell it like a widget. I mean who says, I appreciate the value that this sport, this, and I'll, I'll use the word product for a second, brings into people's lives. And that's what Peter Beattie couldn't do, right? Because he didn't understand. He was just running it like he, you know, he might have run a, you know, a political party. Mm. You know, when you need someone that says... I think this is the greatest game in the world because of how it makes you feel. And then if they've got the business skills, fantastic, but they need the passion as well. Mm. Bill Pulver perhaps being an example who falls into the latter category as well. You know, good in business, but perhaps didn't have that passion and and living and breathing rugby in his blood. Yeah. Come back to David Smith, um, who I was surprised to read. I must have been looking at this just the other day. actually survived three years at the helm of the NRL despite being a rugby person and having, you know, not knowing who the Australian captain was when he was unveiled as the new CEO. He was a Welsh banker, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly, one of the big English banks. Um, but anyway, uh, look, I mean, jumping the fence to the FFA, I love this story too. They've certainly had their dramas recently, which has been theoretically uh, resolved. I mean, you know, the, the, the story of the lowies, you know, the money, the power, the, the federally the federal government approved coup d'etat in the mid-2000s. This sort of cult of personality of, of, of Frank and then ran a dictatorship and then um, divulged in a, into a bit of nepotism to get his son in the, in, the, in, the, in the box seat. It's kind of no wonder that FIFA was required to clean up the mess a bit, really, wasn't it? It's kind of a bit embarrassing. I mean, it's a bit sort of second world or even third world to have FIFA sort of tapping on the shoulder and say, excuse me, can you get your governance sorted out, please? It was a bit grubby. Eh, eh. Yeah, but but I've I, I got a problem with, you know, I've certainly got a problem with FIFA coming in and telling anyone what to do. <laughs> but let's not forget that Lowy saved the game of, and I'll just say soccer for a second, mm. in, in Australia. They flipped it into football and they, they put their own money in the game to keep it alive. Um, you can call that, that nepotism if you like, but to me this is almost a family business and I think they've done a great job. Well, it's only nepotism at the, the last couple of years when he's put his son in, obviously. But, yeah concur with all those points, uh, Steve-O, but um, I think we've reached the point where they've done their job and it's time to sort of hand it over to a bigger Congress. Apparently the Congress that we had was one of the smallest uh, national Congresses in the world. Um, but yeah, I think Stephen Lowy was trying to hang on to this uh, independent governance model, that you know, the corporate governance model that he was pressing uh, for the sport, whereas there were a few more um, powerful interests, I suppose, that, that saw other opportunities. So I think there's yeah, a... Yeah, you come back to me in five years and you let me yeah. know how those other folks go. Yeah, yeah, look, it could be interesting. I mean, there's a, you know, the, the undercurrent there is there's a danger that 
A-League owners, for example, might uh, pull in a certain direction and, and the week will be left behind a bit. Um, I don't know. We could be facing our own English Premier League who break away kind of. <laughs> There are four teams playing each other round and around (laughs) and around. Exactly. Anyway, so uh, yeah, interesting insights into the world of leadership in sport. More than just a game on ABC Grandstand Digital. You're on More Than Just a Game here with Paul Roach, Simon Johnson and Stephen Riley. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Feel free to get in touch. Uh, we flip now to the shootout, which is around the world in eight-ish minutes. Um, we want to talk about the Melbourne Storm, go back to rugby league. There's plenty of variation around the world with respect to club ownership models and even with Australia, within Australia. Uh, member-based models of Aussie rules to the unashamed business ventures of a lot of US sports. I think the Bundesliga is an interesting one, sort of a halfway model. Like there is a rule that says that Bundesliga clubs have to be a minimum 51% owned by members, which is an interesting little safeguard. Uh, I mean, there's private ownership too in Australia, but it's the, the, the teams in Australia are less of a plaything than they are in the US. I mean, you can't relocate a team in Australia, for example. They're not franchises. Um, but the Storm is... Well, it's 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 taking a leaf out of the Green Bay Packers book if their own press release is anything to go by, and the Packers are an exception to that US model where they um, there's certainly a substantial portion of member ownership. So at the moment, what it's, it's privately owned, isn't it? There are three individuals yes. that own the storm, there's a storm. Yeah, and, and they're looking to basically throw it open to the fans. They say they've got twenty five thousand members. And so they're opening it up so that members can actually effectively buy a stake in in the club. Well, they actually committed to this when those three bought the club. So, what, five years ago? Uh, yes. They yep. said that they would explore the viability of fan ownership, but they'd only do it after they'd set up a sustainable Once the viability of the platform. club was uh, established. That's right. mm, okay. Which, which they've done, right? It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Are they just getting out now that uh, the, the top three players have, have, are disappearing? Are you invest- uh, investing? They, Probably time to sell if you They are. bought low and they're selling high. Yeah. I had a look on their website and the little blurb goes, ever wanted to own your own sports team? <laughs> or better yet, which I dispute somewhat, become an owner of your Melbourne Storm. Now we see it's very light on detail, this proposal at this stage, right? What's the minimum stake? Wow, it says there's no detail. So we see fan ownership as an innovative way to set the platform to turbocharge the ambitious growth we plan, plans we have for the Storm, doubling membership. Um, club has commenced the process of exploring whether the fan ownership model is a viable concept for all stakeholders by engaging with a leading international advisory firm. So in the UK, it's Russian oligarchs who own clubs, and here it's uh, just mums and dads in uh, in Port Melbourne. As I say, I think, yeah. go on, Riles. Uh, the question's, what do you do with the money? Are you trying to make a profit or are you trying to do something else? I think I think I quoted this on a previous show. Um, you know, Eddie Everywhere pointing out that when the New England Patriots won a uh, a Super Bowl, you know, the owner bought himself a new jet. If Collingwood <laughs> win another premiership, which won't happen anytime soon, <laughs> they'll uh, buy themselves a new community centre. Right, and that's a bit of a difference. I'm not sure what the uh, potential new owners of the Melbourne Storm will buy. We shall see. We talked a couple of months ago about gambling being the new tobacco in that Italy has now banned gambling sponsorship in sport. Well, alcohol is the other vice competing with gambling for the dubious honour of being the next to get rubbed out of being advertised in public. Now, there's a new campaign calling itself End Alcohol Advertising in Sport, which uh, seeks to end alcohol advertising in sport. You'd be surprised to know. Uh, Mick Malthouse, <laughs> former Collingwood and West Coast Eagles coach, of course, uh, is at the forefront of it, as is 
ex-paramount of Steve so Ella. Steve Ella. What's Steve Ella been doing Mate. the last 35 years? What or a legend. It, Early 80s. Yeah. Manly and Para. Exactly. Oh, he's been he no, he played for Manly. No, he played for Para. Where the gap, you feel like a when he bursts through. The gap, start, the gap starts to narrow. Oh, I see. Gotcha. That's right. <laughs> you missed for a moment. I thought, uh, you were, if, thought you were accusing him of playing it's, some It's manly. highly topical, given that he was a star of that ad. Yeah. yeah. Ah, good point. Good point. Yes. What had, did he feel like at the time? Hadn't made that connection. Or two. Um, John Alexander, MP, of course, former tennis player. He's on board. Now, is this going to happen, Richie? Uh, I mean, the, the economics of it would suggest yeah. that it's a long way off. Well, here's, here's some of the numbers. Uh, there's someone did a bit of a report uh, looking at the amount of alcohol advertising during the the respective grand finals. Coming back to the grannies briefly, grand finals briefly. Um, uh, what's the numbers? There's more than three cases of alcohol advertising every minute of this year's NRL grand final. So that's three hundred and sixty-five throughout the entire broadcast. AFL is a bit less, one per minute, and 188 ads in total. So I think it's fair to say we are at saturation point, or close to. Whether or not it will actually happen is another question, I suppose, Jono. But there are, the laws currently do prevent alcohol advertisement, advertisements I'm sorry, to appear during prime time and kiddie time, but sport has an exception. Mm. Which is the parents' issue, isn't it? I think that's what Mick Malthouse was quoted as saying. He's worried about his grandkids exactly. watching the AFL grand final at three o'clock in the afternoon and having this shoved down their throat. While we're still in alcohol advertising, did you catch um, an announcement about the Australian, from the Australian Open, the Australian Open Tennis? So a large wine conglomerate um, has pulled the pin off of five or ten years' sponsorship, fairly prominent sponsorship, at the Aussie Open, uh, and they have been replaced by a, quote, aspirational Chinese distillery. Um, and I'm, look, I'm not going to uh, attempt to uh, pronounce the name because it looks like I haven't actually dotted it down properly in the first place. Um, and there's no, it's not specific, the, the actual drink is not specified. It's not Whiskey, like a, gin? Doesn't say. Doesn't say. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Last, well, last year when, uh, so when I went to the tennis last year, and they were selling uh, bottled water. They they were Chinese-branded Chinese, bottled waters, yeah. which was interesting. Yep. Right? So, But the the, intri- the amazing thing about this deal they've just signed is Tennis Australia very chuffed with themselves. Apparently, this Chinese distillery has paid almost the same as the motor car company who have, you know, headline sponsorship of the whole event. Right. And that car company pays around about 85 mil a year, they reckon. Wow. Yeah, so this uh, there's plenty more alcohol advertising to come down at the Australian Open, that's for sure. Uh, look, we're not even at uh, red card, yellow card yet, but uh, Warney, Shane Warne's making a surprise appearance outside of the domain of red card, yellow card. No spin. Mm. New book. Mm. Autobiography. My autobiography. No. no, that was his first one. <laughs> oh, was it? His first yeah. One. Oh, okay. So he published my autobiography in 2001, Rochi. Don't you have that? At home? I don't actually, That's, mate, uh, no. Really? In the bathroom? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so midway through his career, he published my autobiography. I mean, it's, it's an interesting concept. Mm. Whose else's autobiography <laughs> is it going to be? Um, but yeah, look, Warney's over in the UK. You know I'm a regular follower of Warney on his, inst- uh, on his uh, social media well. feeds. And he is um, spamming his feed like nothing else with, uh, going hard on the promo, is he? He really is. Um, and he's very grateful for all of his fans, for all of the positive feedback that he's receiving on the book. So, and he's looking good, looking really sharp. 
Surely this is the most unnecessary autobiography <laughs> ever. Is there anything we don't know? It's is not there already anything recorded. He... Exactly. Oh, my God. I love the fact that he went into great detail about that um, sordid occasion when he was he was pinged by News of the World with a couple of models. Oh, did he? he uh, yeah. You know, that sort of grainy yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, photo. Got sprung. Yeah, he, he's, he's gone... You know, you take a little chunk of the book to sort of tease people with how good it's going to be, and that's one of the chunks that presumably yeah, yeah. he chose. Sorry, he had a bit of a crack <laughs> at uh, <laughs> to, to go into detail. Had on. a crack at Steve War as well. Well, is the other chunk? Yeah, he got stuck in a Saint Steve of Bankstown, as I like to call him. Um, I wasn't a fan of what Warney had to say. He sort of said, "If I was captain, I'd stick by myself." So the background is. Uh, was it in the West Indies? Yeah, it was. Steve yeah, War yeah. has sort of said, Warney, you're the vice captain, but we're all on the selection panel. I don't think you're up to it. You've had a poor run. You know, you're not going to get selected. And that's sort of the origins of this um, frosty Phew. relationship that they continue to have. And Warney's line, Riles, correct me if I'm wrong, was essentially, if I was captain, I'd have backed the players in. In other words, he was disappointed that Steve War didn't behave like the captain that he, Shane Warne, would have been. Well, who worse than that? He just didn't pick him, and the team won without him. And uh, yeah, he's been yeah bitter about that ever since. I, honestly, for a guy that's decided to bring this up again, mm. I would have thought he'd make a better case. I think most people reading that would go, "Hmm, yeah, I think the leader made a you know good decision." So there you go, Jono. I think this is another book that I won't be buying. <laughs> Red card, yellow card. On to red card, yellow card, where, yes, we enjoy poking a bit of fun at uh, sporting people who've um, erred off the field of play, done something they'd rather forget, and we're more than happy to bring it back into the spotlight. Riles, what have you got for us? I want to talk about a wallaby. I want to talk about a flying winger. I want to talk about a man called Nick Cummins, who's also known as the Honey Badger, coming in to score. Oh, no. And then choosing that he doesn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so Nick Cummins was the bachelor for uh, what seems like years of our lives. Don't be shy, anyway. Riles. We all know you watch <laughs> Come on. Can I just say for the record, I did not watch a single second of this. We go on, Riles. Oh, he was good. He was good. He was entertaining. He had more sort of country um, slang. It was, it, he was good to watch. But it turns out. Good to watch. <laughs> <You kid. laughs> yeah, it was. Look. The, the question is this, really. Can someone fail at reality TV? And it turns out someone can. Uh, I don't know whether it's because he's a kind and decent human being or mm-hmm. he just didn't get the point that this is a show where you send a girl home every week. And it turned out that he would get quite distressed at sending a girl home every week, he, not quite catching on to the concept that he was supposed to keep doing this until there was one left. Anyway, he got to two left and he decided, no, nope, I'm not in love. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm going to ditch them both and head off the Kokoda Trail. So <laughs> everyone watched this show for so long and they came away very unsatisfied. Suckers, <laughs> suckers! You got what you deserved. <laughs> what do you mean he's supposed to follow some script? And you know, if he if he's not into the, I think I think it was a magnificent move. As much as I didn't watch it within about forty five minutes of it happening, I was well aware of how it ended. But, uh, mate, what are, you, what are you issuing a card based on here, Riles? A red card for leading us on. Oh. He teased us. I'm giving him a gold star. Jono, you, you got, you got, you got um, voting got rights on this one? Yeah, look, I'd give him a yellow. Yeah, yellow, okay. Yeah. Yellow card. Very oh. diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. Wimping out. Okay, fine. Yeah. Oh, oh do, do, you got splinters Bloody there, mate. Reality TV. Mm. 
Go on, Jono, fire up. What do you got for us? Uh, not surprisingly, Roach, I've got some golf not for golf. you. So, look, allow me very briefly, on the field of play, the Ryder Cup this year, and, and it is relevant to the Ryder Context? Cup. Context, yeah. okay. Um, so Europe thrashed the Americans 17.5 to 10.5. The Yanks had been massive favourites leading up to it. They, they had, I think, eight out of the top 10 players. Massive interest, huge crowds. It's pretty much as good as golf gets, Roach. You've got to watch it. Sorry, you're still going? Right. Anyway, yeah. the real story <laughs> The real story happened off the field of play this year, and my Thank nomination God. goes to two players. Dustin yeah. Johnson, DJ, my namesake. Um, he hits the ball slightly longer than me with his driver, only just. <laughs> and Brooks Kupka. Um, they apparently, uh, and it was revealed after the Americans lost, that there was some talk about a lack of chemistry with the American team. And it was apparently yeah. caused by the fact that Dustin and Brooks had a big blow up in the private jet on the way to Paris. Apparently Dustin was jealous that his bulging bicep mate Brooks was getting a little bit too cozy with his wife, <laughs> Paulina Gretzky. Apparently Brooks was consoling Paulina about her relationship problems with DJ. Now, you're an eagle-eyed eagle um, viewer and keen listener of this show, Rochi, mm. and participant. You'd recall that Dustin's a previous nominee in Red Card, Yellow Card. I'm still getting over it. Did you say Gretzky? As yeah, in Wayne's so it's daughter? Wayne's daughter. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, mm. have a look at her social media feed as well. I'm sure I will. Um, no, but so Dustin had, has previously graced the Red Card, Yellow Card slot, given his alleged penchant for getting involved with the wives of other players. Oh, was that that one? And potentially an alleged drug issue as well. Oh, so yeah, what yeah. goes around comes around. Mm. And um, poor old Dustin and Brooks um, yeah, won't be paired again in the foursomes wow. at the next Ryder Cup, I don't think. That's a bit Red Cardish, isn't it? It's pretty, uh, pretty full on, yeah. Mm. So they were playing together in the, in the Ryder Cup. Can you oh, imagine? Good stuff. Look, to be honest, this one for me is more of a gold star for mine, but see what you think, see, see what you think yourself. Floyd Landis, remember that name? He, oh, who was, who was a member of Lance Armstrong's team, exactly, Steve, in the mid-2000s. I think it was 2006 when he won Le Tour. But after having a monstrous comeback from a previous day where he'd cracked going up the mountains, uh, they thought that was a bit sus. He bonked. Uh, yeah, well, there was a couple of years when That's they were calling it bonking, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. they, they got rid of that pretty quickly and turned it into cracked, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, so um, poor old Floyd was uh, was pinged and kicked out. Well, you might be aware, because I think we've covered it here previously, his enforced career change saw him going into dope, funnily enough, legal medicinal applications of marijuana-based products. It's called Floyd's of Leadville, or Leadville, I suppose, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, now, so that's the old news, but what gets him a nomination here today is that he's setting up a pro cycling team with his own company, being the title sponsor. Right. So he has been kicked out of cycling for doping and he's now introducing a cycling team sponsored by dope. Is he only going to ride in California or the other states? Don't know. Legal or? Interesting for the lawyers amongst us, uh, John Over. So he's, got a, he's found himself with a bit of cash because he was some sort of co-accuser is not the right word, but, but the, the, the... Whistleblower. Yeah, well, he's a whistleblower, but then the action that US Postal brought against Armstrong about all the prize money... Um, Landis had some sort of instigating effect on that. So he got a cut of the, of the settlement, basically. Right. Yeah, I think he got over a million bucks, I think. Yeah, so he yeah. sort of rolled this money into the cycling team in an, in an attempt to sort of, you know, a bit of a mayor culpa kind of thing. But uh, so I don't know. I, I think I think like the Schutzbar, the Schutzbar, whatever you pronounce it, I, I think yeah. that's a bit of a gold star. But um, I'd give it a red cut. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, thanks for that, Jono. Uh, good stuff. All right, well, that's Red Card, Yellow Card for another show, and that means it's uh, it's the show for another show. So it simply remains to say uh, goodbye to Stephen Riley. See you later, Riles. Goodbye, all. Simon Johnson. Good on See you, mate. Richie. Uh, it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Thanks for listening to More Than Just a Game on Grandstand Digital. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or via your favourite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. But until then, until next time then, it's bye for now. <laughs>